G'day, welcome to Just In Case Law. My name is Tanya Chapman and today's case is going to be short and sour as we look at the administration of an estate with specific gifts in relation to living in real estate and how that can go wrong. This is the case of the New South Wales Trustee and Guardian versus Colin Schneider, 2011, New South Wales Supreme Court 424. Let's jump straight in. As with many succession cases we cover, we unfortunately start with a death. Beatrice May Morgan died on the 25th of May 2001. Her last will was made eight years earlier in 1993, and by that will she made a particular gift. Her house at Cypress Street, Evans Head, she permitted her son Athel James Morgan to reside in the home for the rest of his life. This is a life tenancy, whereby the house still remains the property of the estate and is dealt with in accordance with the terms of the will, subject to Athel's right to live there for the rest of his life. There was a condition that if the son did not live in the house for a continuous period of six months, then the life tenancy was terminated and the property would revert to the estate. The son Athol could request that the house be sold and another house purchased for him to live in for the rest of his life, subject to the same conditions, that on his death, or when he ceased to live there for a period of six months, that new property would revert to the estate. Basically, regardless of where the house was located, Athol would have accommodation for life. On the termination of the life tenancy, the house and all of its contents were gifted to Beatrice's grandnephew, Colin Schneider. And to a certain extent, that is what had occurred. Following Beatrice's death, her son Athel resided in the Cypress Street property for about eight years. In April 2003, the grandnephew, Colin Schneider, also moved into the property and lived there with Athel till about 2009. The judgment doesn't specify, but let's assume that he lived there with Athol's consent. In April 2009, Athol moved out of the house. The judgment doesn't go into details, but it appears that Athol needed to move into more suitable accommodation due to capacity issues. Six years prior, in July 2003, the New South Wales Public Guardian had been appointed as Athol's guardian meaning that a medical doctor had confirmed that Athol was unable to make medical or lifestyle decisions for himself and the public guardian was appointed to make them for him. In 2009, the New South Wales public guardian determined that Athol needed more suitable accommodation and the terms of Beatrice's will would allow for the house to be sold and new accommodation to be purchased. The New South Wales Public Guardian was seeking to utilise this provision of the will to obtain more suitable accommodation that Athol could live in for the rest of his life. On July 2009, the public trustee sent Colin a notice to vacate, telling him that he had to vacate the Cypress Street property within 30 days, as the property was an asset of the deceased estate and its sale was needed in order for new accommodation to be found for Athol. Colin, however, did not leave the property and continued to live there. 
18 months passed with nothing happening, and the judgment doesn't really explain what was happening during this time, but 18 months later, in January 2011, a solicitor attended the house with a letter addressed to the occupants and Colin Schneider, enclosing a notice to vacate. The notice required that Colin and any other residents vacate the property in about three weeks. The solicitor, Mr Riley, was able to determine that there were people inside the house, but none of them responded to his attempts to get attention, even though he knocked on the front door and called out. Before leaving the property, he placed the letter and the notice to vacate under the locked front door. Proceedings were commenced in the New South Wales Supreme Court on behalf of Athol, seeking to get the property back. Two months later, in March, a process server attended the Cypress Street property to attempt to serve the summons, which is an order to appear before the court. No one responded to his knocking on the front door, so he parked himself up the street a little in order to watch the house. He observed a motor vehicle in the driveway which, while he waited up the street, he noticed pull out of the driveway and leave. He returned to the house and went to the rear of the property. He saw that the back door to the house was opened, and he saw that there was a small external unattached flat, from which he could hear noises of people and music. He called out, and a young male adult and young female adult emerged from the flat. He asked if Colin Schneider was present. The female said no. Both stated that they were Colin Schneider's children. They asked if he was a solicitor, to which he replied no. He asked if they would pass the summons on to Colin, to which the man said yes. The male said that he was over the age of 16 years and his name was Jackie Schneider. A couple of weeks later, the process server returned to the house again. This time, a young adult female answered the door and confirmed that Colin Schneider was home. The process server heard her call out, Dad, there is someone here to see you. A few minutes later, an adult male came to the door and he said, Are you Colin Edward James Schneider? And the man replied yes. He was then served with the summons and supporting affidavit. Bringing this matter before the court. Before we move on to the court process, what was that whole process server about, you may be wondering? Well, basically, uh, Athol's solicitor had commenced court proceedings against Colin Schneider. And it is a requirement that Colin be notified of these proceedings and that there be proof that he was notified. So notice of the proceedings need to be served upon him. And obviously there was a bit of difficulty because he wasn't answering the door or he wasn't at home, but eventually the process server was able to serve notice on Colin. The court hearing. The court recognised that any right of occupation of Mr Schneider only arose when Athol's life tenancy was terminated. Those were the terms of the will. Athol could live in that property or any other property for the rest of his life, and when he ceased to live there, the property would go to Colin Schneider. Just because he moved into the house early doesn't mean he still had a right to it. 
He had no present right to occupy the property, and the trustee of the estate was right to seek possession on behalf of Athol. There was a bit of a legal hurdle at the start of these proceedings that does get really technical, and I wondered whether to include it or not, so I'll try to include it as briefly as possible. You can seek an injunction requiring a person not to trespass on a property, or you can make an application for possession of the property yourself. These two things can sound like pretty much exactly the same thing, but the difference between them is important. And the judge in this case noted that at the start of proceedings, the lawyers acting for Athol were seeking that Colin Schneider give vacant possession of the property. However, the judge noted that perhaps a more appropriate order would be an order for possession of the property. Uh, The first is an order that Colin move out, and the second is an order that Athol is entitled to the property. The judge goes into a lot of detail about the difference between rights to possession versus an injunction on trespass, but I will not go into that here. I'll merely focus on the key difference in enforcing those orders. If the court made an order that Colin give vacant possession in the form of an injunction, it is in effect an order that Colin move out. If he then failed to do so, Athol would need to bring further legal proceedings before the court again to demonstrate that Colin had breached that injunction, thus requiring even more legal time, legal costs, and delay for Athol. Whereas if the court made an order for possession, confirming that Athol was entitled to possession of the property, the court could also make a writ for possession. After receiving a writ for possession, the tenants, Colin, is given further notice to vacate the property, and if he fails to do so by a certain date, the sheriff can assist in removing Colin from the property. So basically, the second option, the order for possession, is easier to enforce. The court determined in this case that the appropriate remedy was one for possession, but could they make that order? When proceedings for possession of land commenced, the plaintiff or applicant must serve the originating process on the occupier, meaning Athol needed to serve the summons on Colin. The summons was served on Colin as we discussed earlier, but was it also served on his children, who were clearly also living on the property? Or did Athol have to start a whole process again to also remove Colin's children? Well, fortunately for Athol, it has been established in case law that the family members of the tenant are not themselves occupiers and do not each need to be served individually. So Colin was the relevant occupier and his children being members of his family did not require to be served separately. Athol was awarded possession of the property as well as leave for a writ of possession to be issued. Colin was ordered to pay Athol's legal costs. Lessons As I said, a short and sour case that I could have made longer if I dived into all of those legal arguments I talked about, but I'm assuming you would rather that I not do that. Correct me if I'm wrong. What is interesting about this case is that it demonstrates the difficulty of evicting someone who is not a party to a tenancy agreement. 
This can be problematic with deceased estates, in which the executor needs to deal with the property, possibly to sell it and divide the proceeds among the beneficiaries, but there is a person living in the house who refuses to vacate. This case demonstrates that the appropriate application to make to the court is for possession of the property, but it also generally preferable to avoid a Supreme Court battle by entering into a residential tenancy agreement where you can. A residential tenancy agreement, or a lease as it's more commonly called, is enforceable by the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal, which is a cheaper and easier legal process. It doesn't necessarily need legal representation. So before you let someone move into your house, whether that is with you or on their own, whether they're a relative or a friend, whether you're the executor of the estate and they're a beneficiary, you should consider whether a residential tenancy agreement may be needed to allow for an easier eviction process. You might also consider not letting them move in at all. If you are relatively certain that there's a high risk that this person may refuse to move out when required to do so. Because as this case demonstrates, it is not generally an easy process. That's it from me. I hope you found that case interesting and I hope you'll join us for our next episode.